We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, finishing up chapter 1 today and a little bit into chapter 2. We're going to be on uh, page 981. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you in one of the seats of the black one. We're going to be on page 981. And if you would, would you please stand as I read, as I spit out my gum. So I remember my college, that's Communications 101, no gum in your mouth, right? And by the way, Cole, um, I had no idea that that song was out of tune. So if that makes you an idiot, what does that make me, right? (laughs) I don't know, I'm just saying. All right, here we go. Verse 24, chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. It's one long sentence right there. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all His energy that powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those that have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may be deluded with your plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as a, as a minister of the gospel and one that is somewhat like Paul, as a, as a pastor, I, I feel uh, tired this week. It's been a long week. Uh, a lot of ministry stuff is happening, preparing a message, uh, as well as uh, kids stuff, end of year school stuff. Uh, I've toiled, I've struggled, and I can relate with Paul. I, I hear Paul, I experience what Paul is, is, is saying in this passage, is I believe there are others in this body that, that are tired from a long week of, of ministry, of toil, of struggle. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that your, your grace that you speak of here, that that empowers us by your spirit, that we don't, we don't rest on your strength. I don't rest on my strength. I'm sorry, we do rest on your strength and we don't rest on our strength this morning. May we see as you used your servant Paul that we are all called ministers. We all have a role. We all been given stewardship uh, by you to, to, to use the gifts that we have to to bless uh, this body, to serve this body and those that aren't in this body with the gospel. So Lord, will you be with us today? There's a lot in this passage. We won't be able to cover it all. So just let us take away what each individual needs to take away. Let your spirit move in our hearts and our mind this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So i got to open up the question. When you hear the word minister, you hear the word minister, what pops into your mind? What pops into your mind? Do you think of, uh, of a man, an older man with a big old black, you know, robe, maybe with a collar? Uh, do you think of, uh, maybe, uh, your, your pastor when you were growing up as a kid dressed up in a three-piece suit? Or do you think of someone in vocational ministry? You know, someone overseas that's a missionary to a, another country or, or someone that's in campus ministry like at CSU, like Jason Smith at FCA or, or crew staff. When, when you hear the word minister, what do you think of? Do you think of yourself as a minister? Do you say, like, well, I hear minister, and I'm like, I'm a minister. Does that pop into your mind? Well, I think today Paul gives us a clear picture to the Colossians, and then also to you and me, on what the calling of a minister is. And through his own personal testimony as a minister, we see that we are also called ministers. Everyone in here is in the ministry of Jesus Christ, has a role, has a, has a gift to um, use to build the kingdom of God. Therefore, we're in his ministry. Therefore, we are all called ministers. 
So when you hear that word minister, you should think first and foremost of yourself as a minister of the gospel of Christ. And as I'm looking at your faces, some of you are kind of like looking at me at that confused look, be like, well, that's, that's a little different. I've never heard that before, you know, and so what? dive in and see how that might flush out. And as we go through this passage in Colossians, I think you will see that you and the Apostle Paul share some same giftings and, a sh- and some same, the same calling to be a minister of the gospel of Christ. Let's look in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. He says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what we see here is Paul has a clear calling on his life. He's, he's set apart by God to be a minister. Another way we could talk about the word minister, another word for that is servant. It's a general term, minister. Aqua is also uh, to as a servant in scripture. And here when he talks about being a ministry, he uses a very distinctive phrase to describe his calling, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that is from God. So we see is this gifting, this calling, him being called a minister to the church is a stewardship that has been given to him by God. Stewardship from God. Stewardship means this, the management of a household, oversight, or administration. So God in his economy is overseeing us as human beings, and Paul in particular, and he gives Paul a stewardship. He gives Paul a job. He gives Paul a ministry. That is to be a servant, to be a minister in God's economy. The NIV, some of you guys might have that translation, a minister, where it says minister in there, it might say servant. So again, we see this generic term. It literally means one who serves tables or executes commands of another. So you can see how this, this term minister or servant is very general. It's a big overarching umbrella because we know that Paul has given other titles in Scripture to really give him a specific calling. We open up in Colossians 1.1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. That is very narrow. We see other places where he's, a, he's an elder. We see other places where he's a church planning pastor or missionary. These would all fall under the big umbrella of ministry of very specific titles that Paul has taken or has been called to. These are his giftings. We see Paul in verse 23 that we looked at last week. It says, Paul, he's a minister or servant of the gospel. And then here in verse 24, we see he's a minister and servant of the church. So here we see two distinct callings of a minister. You're a minister of the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. You share the gospel, not only to those who don't know it, but the gospel is what we live and move in each and every day. We need the gospel every day to guide us and direct us in our lives. So we see that he's a minister of the gospel, and we also see that he, he's a minister in the church or of the church or to the church. He uses his gifts to what? Bless the body of the church, individuals, people that make up the church. Therefore, Paul is a servant of the gospel and the servant of the church. Now, let me ask you a question. Doesn't that describe every Christian? Doesn't that describe every Christian? We are all ministers of the gospel. We are all ministers to one another in the church. We are servants. That is what we are. So we see we have the same calling as ministers as the apostle Paul. Now, he gets a very specific calling as an apostle, as a, as a church planter early on, just like you and I have other specific gifts that God has given us, but we all operate under ministers. So using the word minister generally not as an official title. So don't think when you see minister, you automatically think pastor, elder, because that's not how scripture uses it. We even see in Romans 16, 1, it says, I command to you our older sister Phoebe, a servant, same word here that is used for Paul. So all of us are ministers of the Lord. So when you walk out of here, when you hear that word minister, you walk out as a minister of the Lord, a servant of the Lord, one who proclaims his gospel and lives his gospel, and one who uses their gifts to bless one another in the body of Christ, the church. And in that, we all have been given specific assignments, callings, and giftings. This is the body. We talked about this last week. Christ is the head. Each one of us is a body part. And we 
work together when we operate in those giftings, when we minister to one another in those giftings. He tells Archippus in Colossians 4.15, and say to Archippus to see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Rich opened up Colossians a number of weeks ago, and he, he went through a list of all the individuals, both men and women, who impacted the kingdom of God as ministers of Christ, spreading the gospel and building one another up in the body. So if Paul was around today and he wrote a letter to the crossing, he would highlight some of you in there, just like he highlighted Archippus and others to fulfill their ministry. But indirectly, he's talking to all of us in that letter. Fulfill the ministry which has been given to you by God. Be a good steward of that gift that God has given you. So let me just quickly ask you, are you a good steward of the ministry? As a minister, the gift that God has given you, are you using that to bless the body? And notice who Paul highlights first and foremost, who his ministry is to, and who receives the ministry of benefits of that first and foremost. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Verse 25, stewardship from God that was given for, to me for you. Two, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you, talking about the local body. Then it goes regionally for those in Laodicea, the area, and then for all who have not seen my face. I think in this, in Paul, he's not only talking about those there, but he's also maybe even talking about us. He has such a view that we haven't seen Paul's face, and yet he's striving and toiling and writing these letters empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing that this will be used in our lives to bless us, to help us understand how to be great ministers in the year 2018. So let me ask you a question. Have you benefited from Paul's writings? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, the the answer is obviously yes, because he's written three-quarters of the New Testament. And therefore, a Christian who, who loves Jesus, loves the gospel, loves his word, so gets into his word. And we get into Paul. Paul has great stuff. So if you're a Christian, you have benefited from Paul's writing, his stewardship of the gift that God has given him. And now it's our turn, it's our joy to now pass that on down to others. What we have learned both in word and deed, in experience of the truths of Paul that he has written in those letters. So as a minister, as a servant in God's economy, one, think about this question. Where has he called you to minister the crossing? Get real specific. How has he gifted you? And where has he given you, for our sake, the gift to bless us and to grow us and to help us mature in Christ? How are you using your gifts? I could spend probably uh, the good rest of the day just looking at a number of your faces and, and, and encouraging you and praising you on how you guys have been using your gifts here at the crossing. You guys have made a mark. You guys have stamped the culture of the crossing because you guys get this. We are, we are really encouraged of, of, of how you guys understand that everyone in here is, is a minister. Everyone in here has a, a role to play, has been given gifts, and we're good stewards by God to build one another up. I think of like uh, the gifts of administration. I mean, have you guys noticed like in the last number of weeks how we've had signs pop up all over uh, the crossing, right? Um, for you parents, you know, and visitors come in, we used to have no signs. And then some of the gift of administration, hey, we need some signs telling where like new people are, where do we need to send our kids? So we have these big old signs that says, the crossing kids, right? Another great uh, illustration, bathrooms, right? How many of you walked in here and asked me, hey, where's the bathroom, Aaron? Where's the, we, got, we got signs because we people with the gift of administration helping our body out. We have a guy like Brandon Dupree who, who has uh, the gift of administration. We have these, uh, each life group has um, uh, assignments to serve each and every week. And he's made this big spreadsheet with 11 life groups and the dates for the rest of the years and where they are to serve. That makes our life easier to serve the body. Um, he's given us a, a help on, on the financial background. He works at Otterbox, and he oversees a $30 million budget at Otterbox. We thought, well, he could probably help us out at the crossing, right, with our budget and, and finances. So he's using his gifts. I think of Katie Drees, who's nine months pregnant, yet makes sure that we get toilet paper and napkins and paper towels. These are all gifts of service. We, we just paid off the building. A number of you given gifts to your generation, uh, uh, generosity. You've given above and beyond. These are all things of the church. You guys using your gifts, being good stewards to make the crossing what it is today. 
These things, they may seem small, but they help us to have the gift of, of leadership and proclamation to do our job. And we see the body of Christ working. So you guys are doing an excellent job of walking in your giftings and being good stewards of them, just like Paul. We are all called ministers. Second, we also notice here, not only are we all called ministers, but we also see that ministers will all suffer. We will all suffer. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. And the sufferings here, he's talking about mainly for Christ. But I think sufferings can also be used in, outside of just for Christ, for health, health sufferings and financial sufferings. I mean, just sufferings in general. Here, he's very focused on suffering for Christ. That's why he's in prison. He's writing this letter in prison. But I think it covers all suffering, his good principles on how we can suffer. There's, there's a lot we could say about suffering. I remember Matt Chandler, um, right after he went through his uh, cancer, uh, his, brain, his brain tumor and cancer, he, he talked about, as a pastor, the first, whatever, eight or, eight or ten years, he didn't, he didn't teach the people how to suffer well. And if I think we look over uh, the landscape of Christianity, that we could do a better job teaching each other how to suffer well. Because suffering is part of living in a Genesis but how many times do you see a Christian when, when, when financial suffering happens or cancer or sickness or something ha- tragic happens in their life, they say, God, why did you let this happen to me? How could you let me suffer? But as we look throughout the Bible, suffering is a major theme in Scripture. So this is going to help us suffer well. And I think in the fall, I'm going to do just a, a little mini-series on suffering because I, there's a lot of suffering going on in this body. And Christ in this gospel has a lot to say about how to suffer well. And Paul kind of scratches the surface for us today. He gives us a great principle on how to suffer well. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. He's just following his leader, Jesus. Jesus says, if you follow me, you will have trouble, tribulations. You will suffer in this world. James says the same thing. So this is nothing new. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh, and I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, when you pause and you read that, when I paused and read that, I had a different strokes uh, moment right there, right? You guys remember that show, Different Strokes, what you're talking about, Willis? I had that right there because when you read that, it looks like and sounds like that there's something lacking in Christ's ministry that we got to come in and, and fill up, Right? For your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body. Now, is that saying that Christ's death on the cross, his reconciliation, his redemption, there was something missing we fill in? No, not at all. Not at all. Jesus' suffering was totally complete and totally sufficient. We add nothing to his passive obedience or death on the cross for the suffering of sin. So then what does this mean? What does this mean that, that Paul and, 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 and us, we fill up in Christ's afflictions? Simply this, that the death of Christ on the cross was here with the Colossians probably 25, 30 years before this letter was written. And so the Colossians need the message of Christ's suffering delivered to them, taken to them. It's the same word kind of used with Epaphras in Philippians where Paul sends, I'm sorry, Epaphroditus in Philippians where Paul sends him with these gifts. Paul, uh, Epaphrodite is the, the deliverer of these gifts. That's what it means here to fill up. We are deliverers. One said this, Sam Storm said this. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's affliction is not known and trusted in the world. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by the ministers of the word. So that's what we do as Christians. That's how we fill up. We, we, in our lives, when we suffer, we're actually giving people a little glimpse of what Christ has done for us and how he is sufficient in our suffering. Suffering. Therefore, Paul's suffering gives the Colossians, again, a little glimpse into what Christ has done for them. Paul is writing and delivering this message of the gospel through suffering because that is how Jesus delivered it. He delivered his message, the gospel, through his suffering. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how Jesus ministered. Therefore, this is how Paul ministers. Therefore, this is how we minister. The Lord uses us and our suffering 
to, to, to show people that Jesus is, we'll see, sufficient. And that's why Paul has joy. I heard this incredible testimony this past week about this young man named Joseph, this Maasai warrior from uh, Africa. And of course, all testimonies are incredible, um, but this one was incredible as well. He was, he was a warrior, he was walking on one of those dirt African roads, you know, going to get some water, and a missionary came in contact with him on the road, a Christian missionary, one carrying out his assignment, being a good steward of the, the mission that he has been given. He, he shares the gospel with Joseph, and Joseph right then and on, on the spot receives Christ, is saved, and is rejoicing because he now knows the living God. And so he runs back to the village to share with his people, these people that he's grown up with, thinking that they're going to be overjoyed now knowing who the living God is. So he goes there, he's knocking on the doors, he's sharing the testimony, and then quickly the men grab him in the village. And they hold him down, and the women come in, and they start to beat him with sticks and throw rocks at him. Some even had a little bit of barbed wire and started beating him with barbed wire. To the point where Joseph passes out. They take him out somewhere near some lake or something and just drop him off. And he comes in and out of consciousness for months, and then finally he kind of gets revived a little bit. And Joseph's first thought thought is, man, I, I must have said something wrong. For them to treat me like this, I must, have, I must have preached the message wrong. So he rehearsed the message in his life, and he went back to the village. And again, again, proclaiming Christ. And then all of a sudden, what do they do? The same thing. The men grab him, the women grab him, they beat him again, point of death, and they take him outside the village. So the first time he survives, you're like, okay, he, he survives. The second time he, he survives, it's a miracle, because they just reopen all the other wounds. And yet Joseph goes back a third time. Because he's so passionate about what he has just learned, about the gospel and knowing him. And before he even gets to inside the village, they see him, they grab him, they beat him. Now remember, this guy has grown up. He's got, he's got his own little hut in their village. And the last thing he remembers the third time was those women and those men that were beating him started to weep, started to cry. And then the next thing you know, he didn't wake up outside the village in the jungle somewhere, but he woke up in his own bed. And these individuals that were beating him, causing his suffering for the gospel, were now trying to nurse him back to health. And you know what happened? The whole village came to Christ. Why? Because Joseph filled up Christ's afflictions. They got a taste of glimpse, a small taste of what happened with Joseph. They recognize that that's what Christ has done for them for their punishment, that he died for their sins. He suffered on the cross for them. They received Christ. This is why Paul rejoices. This is why Joseph rejoices, because he understands that in our suffering, God will use that suffering to bring others to Jesus. He will use that suffering to on display Jesus' sufficiency for you and me in those times of trial, in those times of suffering. You see, when we suffer, we get to show everyone else what our lives are built on, the rock of Jesus and his goodness in us and towards us. He is sufficient. You see, suffering is the great equalizer in life, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor doesn't matter if you're young or old. doesn't matter if you're male or female. Suffering hits all of us. We all have to endure it. And Paul knows and has joy because he knows it's in suffering and how we handle it can make a difference for eternity for someone in our circle of influence. One said this, suffering well could be the greatest sermon our lives ever preach. Think about that. Suffering, when we suffer, that could be the greatest, and how we suffer could be the greatest testimony, the greatest sermon our lives preach. Some of you guys know this firsthand. I know this firsthand. This is how my wife, Rita, came to faith in Christ. She came to faith when, uh, as you guys know, my mom passed away on Christmas Eve. She thought our family was, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy, because... You know, not because we had Jesus, but because we had a good family. And then when she saw when my mom passed away, there was devastation, there was tears, but she also saw something else. She also saw a peace. 
She also saw even a joy in my heart and my family's life because she saw the sufficiency of Jesus that our lives were built on. Not our comfort, not on how great our lives were, but on Jesus. And when she looked at her life, she said, I don't have that. I want that. And by God's grace, through our suffering, my suffering, he saved my wife. Some of you have that same testimony. Your, your family members or friends have suffered, and, and you see them, and they see the sufficiency of Christ in them. They're smiling. There's joy. There's pain. There's heartache. There's, there's times where you ask why, but the overarching theme of their life is joy because they understand that the Lord is using it for their joy and our good. Therefore, Paul says he rejoices in his suffering. Secondly, we see a, a minister's message. So we looked at a, a minister's stewardship of the gifts that we have given us and the suffering, and we suffer with joy. Secondly, we see a, a minister's message in verses 26 and 27. 25b, of which I became a minister according to stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among you the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want to circle that word mystery? That's a major point that Paul has taken out. The message is a mystery. What is the mystery? We'll get to that in a second. But Paul was given this message. It was a mystery. That doesn't mean it couldn't be understood, mystery, but it means it's been hidden. And now at this point in time, right into the Colossians, Paul is revealing saints of the church this mystery. This mystery. Well, what is the mystery? Again, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the rich of the glory. This mystery, what is it? Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of heaven. That's the mystery. Christ is in you is living in you, is guiding you, is directing you, has sealed you through his spirit, which then in turn gives you a hope, a hope for heaven. This is what has been fully revealed now in the New Testament in Christ. One said this about the mystery. Um, the mystery, this mystery is a stunning reality of Christ living in us as the source of our life now and the guarantee of our life forever for anyone who believes. This is an incredible truth to the Colossians. We look back because we're, we're, you know, a couple thousand years removed from Christ and we have his scriptures and we've been preaching this for the last 10 years. So we, yeah, oh yeah, Christ in you. Okay, we get it. Yeah, right. I got it, right? It's, that's not a, that's not a new truth, but to, to the Colossian church, this was revolutionary. It became so clear because now at this point in history, God has made it clear. He has revealed this mystery of the gospel that Christ is in you. For all those who repent and believe in Jesus. Christ is living in you through his spirit. He is the cause and the seal of the hope that you will endure to the end. We talked about this last week. You will endure to the end and you will enter the joy of heaven because Christ is in you. Christ living in you is the assurance above and beyond all other evidences out there that you will be in glory. The hope of glory. What is, what is hope for? Let me ask you this question. What is hope for? Is, is hope for the future or is hope for you now? Hope is about the future, but hope isn't for the future. Hope is for you now. Hope is what gives us assurance now. Hope is what gives us assurance for heaven now. Let me ask you something. What if you, what if you were, how, how should I ask this? There we go. What if you had heaven, but you didn't know it? How would, that, how would that affect your lives? You had heaven, but you didn't know you had heaven. How would that affect your lives? It wouldn't, right? But here it is. Because we are in Christ, we have heaven. We know the gospel. It's been revealed to us. If you're in Christ, you know that you have heaven. You will gain heaven. You will make it to glory. Therefore, knowing that you have heaven gives you hope now, today, in your suffering. Why? Because you know that in the suffering, it's just temporary. And that one day you're going to reach glory, heaven, and there will be no suffering anymore. So that's what we mean. In Christ, we have the hope of glory. 
Hope is for now. It's not for the future. Hope is for now. Hope is when you're battling and struggling in life, when you've hit that bottom. It's when you're in Christ, you know that you have the hope of glory. It ministers to your soul now. This is what is being revealed. Isn't that awesome? May you rest in hope now. This is an amazing reality. And notice again, it's not just for the Jews, but for everyone, the Gentiles. The Colossians were probably mainly Gentiles, and all of a sudden this reality says, it's not just for the Jews, it's for you. Yes, you as a Gentile, those who are non-Jewish, that's everyone in here, it's for us as well. The mystery of Christ, the gospel is a global message. It doesn't matter if you're a moralist in America, if you're a Muslim in Iran, if you're a Buddhist in China, if you're a Hindu in India, the gospel of Christ is for you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can have this glory. They can have this glory. This is the only message that can penetrate the hearts of people. The good news of Jesus Christ. This is our message. We are the 27 church to make known how great among the Gentiles. God uses you and me to go to our co-workers, our classmates, our friends, and our family to proclaim this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because many of people around in your circle have no hope. They got no hope. You got hope because you have Jesus. And we're called to give it to him. Just like Joseph the Messiah war. Now, we're probably not going to suffer like him, but we, we'll have some suffering. We'll be, have some ridicule. We'll probably have some discrimination against us. We probably will be called names, but that shouldn't quench our fire and our passion to save the salvation message of Jesus with those family members, friends, and co-workers. We proclaim it. See, just like we have been trusted to make this mystery, this message of the gospel fully known. You and I are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, something radically happens to us. Our life changes directions. Our affections change directions. Our passion changes direction. Our mission, our purpose, while we're alive, changes direction. We are no longer living just for ourselves to make a comfortable life and to be successful. But instead, we've been trumped by Christ with a greater mission. And that's to live for His agenda. His mission. His mission, ministry. Therefore, whatever assignment He has given you, a teacher, a mechanic, a stay-at-home mom, an engineer, wherever God has assigned you, you are called to take the mystery, the message of Christ to the people in your circle of influence. You are no longer living for yourself and your own agenda, but now for His agenda. You are living it for Christ. To live for Christ is gain. And I love the crossing. Again, I, I, because you guys get this. You guys have gotten this over since we started. You guys have gotten this. We started out with nine people, and now we've grown. And thousands have walked through these doors. And, and the reason why thousands have walked through these doors is not because we've passed out 10,000 flyers and mailers in the mail. Not because we, we do one big production trying to get the masses to come to this building. The reason why people come to the crossing is because you get this message. You get that you are a minister. You get that you need to take this message to your circles of influence and you share it not only with words but with deeds. And people are drawn to you because of that. So great job, just like the Apostle Paul, and being good stewards of the, of, the, of the message, of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thirdly, we see the minister's message leads to maturity. Leads to maturity, verse 28, and then chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Verse 28, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. You see, Paul wants us to see a progression in a minister's life, in your life, in my life. The, the first progression is where we understand that we've been given a gift. We, we are called to steward this gift. And in the stewardness of this gift, there's going to be suffering. But that's okay. We can have joy in that suffering because we know that God is using it to save people because they see the sufficiency of our lives built on the rock of Christ when we suffer. 
and he uses that to bring people into his kingdom. Secondly, we see that as a good steward by the ministry, we proclaim the mystery. We, we, we proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, the, the message that we have brings people hope. And thirdly, we see here that we come now to the purpose that we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's Paul's purpose, so that we present everyone mature in Christ. And, and the, the foundational way we do that is through the proclamation of his word. It's through the preaching of the word, the studying of his word, the, the, the going over the word with one another, sharpening another with one, one another with the word. Uh, we want to be, if we want to be mature Christians, we, we got to bleed the Bible. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan. John Bunyan, he said, when you, when you cut John Bunyan, he bled the Bible. That's what we want to be as Christians. Uh, we, we, we make and we grow in maturity through the Scriptures, obviously, empowered by the Spirit in community. It's not the only way, but we, then we, we, we use the truths of Scriptures in our lives. So that's we, we proclaim Him. And notice again, three times He says, everyone. Warning everyone, teaching everyone, present everyone. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for those that have reached that secret level of knowledge. This is for everyone. Everyone who's a Christian should grow to maturity. Maturity. So the goal of Christian ministry is not just to lead someone to Jesus. There's a lot of people that just do evangelistic ministry. They lead them to Jesus and they just leave them alone. That's what the Bible talks about. The, the Bible talks about is we want to lead people to Jesus, but then we also want to see them mature in Jesus. We want not just everyone to grow old in the faith. We want everyone to grow up in the faith. Notice the language Paul uses to make this a reality in verse 29. Paul says, for this I toil, I struggle with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. This is, this, this is one of probably the most humbling verses in all Scripture right here for all of us. To make this a reality, here's the model that Paul says. This is, this is the route. This is how we make people mature. We toil. We struggle. It has the idea of an athlete straining in competition. Of an athlete giving maximum effort, both physically and mentally. Stretching himself or herself, humanly possible. Just like an athlete that you see on a field or on a court. You see those guys, you see those gals, you know that work has gone into them. You see them straining and toiling. Paul says that's what it should look like to make a disciple. That's what it should look like in your life and my life to help people mature in Christ. He gives maximum effort, labor, hard work, dedication to bring men, women, and children to maturity. He also recognizes it's not his own strength. He needs the, the Holy Spirit. Notice he says again, with all his energy, Christ's energy that powerfully works in me. The reason why Paul does this, the reason why he uses this language, the reason why he gives his life in this manner, because he sees the message as a worthwhile endeavor. As the mission for his life, to make Christ known. Therefore, he gives all of himself to this mission. How about you? How about me? That's why I said these are humbling words. See, as a minister, how hard are you working on maturing disciples? On maturing your brothers and sisters in Christ who are sitting next to you? Are you agonizing? Are you struggling? Are you toiling? How about in your life group? How about with your friends? How about with your own family? How about with your own kids? Paul says, I struggled, I toiled. We will do this when we see this as the message for our lives. This is what we do when we give, give our lives to something. This is our highest calling. Now let me encourage you guys again. Because I know there's a lot of conviction setting in here, and I'm coming in my heart when I study this. I'm like, oh my God, I gotta do some work. <laughs> right? But I think overall, in general, we've done a, a pretty good job at this. Many of you have done a very good job at this. You guys have laid down your lives. You have opened your home. You have stretched yourself financially. You have stretched yourself with your time so that you could see the gospel mature 
people in, the, in, in your life here at the crossing. I think you guys have done a good job. You struggled. You've, you, you've toiled with people. The example is you know, we, we, you know, Rita and I took in Daniel Smith. You guys know him. Um, struggle, toil. He lived with us for like a year and a half, you know. And it was great. But it, it stretched us because we had five kids. Now we have, you know, the almost other brother they call Daniel, my other kids, you know. And, and, and then Daniel has taken that. And he's done that, and he's poured into you and, and many others. He's poured into a guy like Joe Crawford. He's toiled and struggled and laid down his life for Joe Crawford. Now Joe Crawford is doing that for other guys. And that's the model of discipleship. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's why this church grows as well, because you guys are doing a good job in this. I often use the analogy of a, a, a hockey game talking about this, and we have a lot of people that are, are skating on the ice, right? You guys seen hockey, right? And those guys, they go for like a minute, and they're giving maximum effort on the ice. And then they're just like, I got to come off. They come back to the bench, and there's people on the bench, and they do a shift change. A lot of you have been skating on the ice of discipleship, of maturity. You've been, you, you, you are tired. And then there's some of you that, that need to pick up your game a little bit. You're on the team, but you're just sitting on the bench, and these guys come in for a shift change, and they're like, nope, I'm, I'm just, I'm good. And so they go out. Some of you got to get engaged in, in, into the game. So the question is, well, how do you do that? Well, start small. Just look at your circles of influence. Just look at your, if you're in life group, look at your life group. Who can I start pouring into with my life group? If you're married, maybe it's your spouse, or maybe your kids. But the point is, is that to make someone mature in Christ, we need to be intentional and it's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult work. It's going to be messy work. But in the end, there's a great, great reward. We see what maturity looks like in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. We see in verse 1, we see that Paul, you know, he's, he's, he has these trials. He's struggling for them so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here he gives us a little glimpse of, of what maturity looks like. And he uses this, this treasure language, this riches language. This is another theme throughout the scriptures, that if you are in Christ, you need to understand the riches that you have available to you. The treasure room of heaven is open to you. Uh, the, the riches language is, is all over scripture. In Christ, this is our reality that we are rich. Not necessarily monetarily, but in other ways. Uh, 1133, Romans 1133. Oh, the depths of the riches of both wisdom and knowledge. We're, we're rich in wisdom and knowledge because we have the scriptures. In Ephesians 2, 4, it says this, in him we are rich in grace. You are rich in grace because you are in Christ. In Proverbs 15, 6, it says, Great wealth is in the house of the righteous. Or in this, another way to say it is, In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. And here Paul highlights a four, four or five things. He says, All these riches, all these treasures are encouragement, love, assurance, understanding, knowledge. We talked about one already, the hope of glory. That's a riches that we have. All these are riches that we have in Christ. And so someone who's maturing in Christ is growing in these areas. You're growing in encouragement. You're growing in love. You're growing in assurance. You're growing in understanding and knowledge. You're growing in hope. Let's just look at one. Let's look at encouragement. A, a sure sign of maturity is that as you walk daily with Christ, you become more of an encourager than a discourager right? You, you become someone that, that builds someone up rather than tears someone down. In other words, you become less of a critic and more of an encourager. Some people think the sign of being a critic is an age of maturity, right? We all know those people in our lives, but it's not. I don't see that in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say be a critic of everyone daily. It says encourage one another daily. I love Theodore Roosevelt. He has one saying or poem, um, and it's the first line. It's, I think it's the first line, but it says this. It is not the critic who counts, but the man who is actually in the arena. There, there can be a lot of critics in church that are sitting on the bench during the ice hockey game and pointing out what you're doing wrong on the, uh, on the rink, right? 
Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Is there time for admonishment and rebuke? Yeah, but we're not, that's, that's different than being a critic. Be an encourager. If you are a mature Christian, you are an encouraging Christian. That's one of your marks. You're, you, you build people up. You strengthen them. You give compliments. You praise people. That's what an encourager is. This is all over the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Encourage one another and build each other up as you are doing. Again, I think a lot of you guys are doing a great job. I think that's why a lot of people find the, the, the crossing a, a, a great place because of the encouragement that you guys bring. I hear that all the time. Man, your people are just, they're nice. They're encouraging. They, they, they build me up. Mature, gospel-centered people are encouraging people. Encouraging. We do a little game. What? This is how I teach this to my, to my family and, and to my kids I coach. And I've talked about this before. We talk about put-ups and put-downs. And, and, and what we'll do is we'll be, we'll be real intentional. We'll do what's called the put-up game, trying to instill this, this message of being an encourager, a Christian encourage. And the put-up game is this, is that we'll go around the table and we'll say, hey, I want, you to, I want you to put up your brother. I want you to put up your sister. Give them a compliment. Praise them. Encourage them. And it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a good exercise. You guys should try it. You know, rather than the put-down game. Put-ups, be an encourager. Look at the other list. You guys can go through the list. Uh, do this. Ask someone you trust. Ask someone you trust and go through these attributes. Uh, and ask them, am I more encouraging or am I more discouraging? Am I loving or am I unloving? Do, am I a doubter or do I have assurance? Am I, am I growing? Am I, and, and let them be honest and real with you. It's just a test. It's just something that, that, that makes us say, hey, are we growing? And I think if most of you guys do that, you're going to be encouraged. Because if you look where you started, even in January 1, I can go around the room and I can see ways in which I've seen some of you guys grow already, and it's encouraging. So being encouraged also, and quickly we'll end with this, that also the riches and treasures of discernment, also riches and treasures are that of discernment and the firmness of our faith. Look at Colossians 3. Through five, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing and seeing good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. So just like the Colossians, we are living in a culture that's at war with Christianity. It's a war with Christianity, with Jesus and his word. And that's not hyperbole. There's a spiritual battle Paul talks about over and over again. You and I are in a spiritual battle every day for the souls of men and women. For our soul, for your spouse's soul, for your kid's soul, for your classmate's soul, for your co-worker's soul. It's a very real reality. We are on the front lines of battle, spiritual warfare. And another sign of a mature believer, Paul says, is that we are able to stand firm in the faith and not be deceived or deluded by plausible or persuasive arguments. Especially those of you that are in the school system. There's a lot of smart people that have a lot of letters behind their name that look at this book and go, that's foolish. That's a myth. You, you can't believe in that. That's just, it's just, it's like believing in the Easter bunny, et cetera, et cetera. A mature believe, a believer stands firm on this. So ask yourself, are you firm in your faith? Are you firm in what you believe about the gospel, about the scriptures? I mean, we're under attack. You guys know this. Um, those are a couple of things. The gospel first, the scriptures are under attack, marriage is under attack, sexuality is under attack, how we work is under attack. A lot of people don't want to work, but the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. Be good workers, hard workers. The, the, the value and the dignity of life is under attack, whether it's a baby, whether it's ethnicity, racial, whether you're older, that's being under attack. Do you stand firm on what the scripture says? A mature believer stands firm and believes what the Scripture says. It's very clear. I know there might be some that say, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and you have all these different opinions. No, it doesn't. It's very clear. It's very black and white on these issues, on, on, on God's view. And that's where we need to stand firm on. And then when we get in those debates, we, 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 we talk about and we, and we apply and we engage with grace and love and truth 
and we, and we hear people in dialogue, right? There's a way to go about presenting Jesus' truth. You see that. We want to be filled with grace and truth and how we share. But look at your life. Do you stand for truth? Now listen, all of us say, I stand firm, but I got a long ways to grow. That's all of us in here. Therefore, what you see here is we always need Paul's in our lives. We, we, we never arrive in maturity here on this earth. It's a constant growth process. We should be progressing. We'll have some, some, we'll definitely have some dips. And then we'll have some gains and we'll have some dips and we'll have some gains. It's, it's going to be a wave, but they'll, they'll be over the trajectory of our lives. We'll see, we'll see growth. But we need each other for that growth and that maturity to continue. We need to be in discipling, maturing relationships constantly throughout our lives. We need to be walking with lives with people that engages with the word, that engages with prayer, that, that we engage in life together in community. Sunday mornings, life groups, journey groups, outside of those formal things. We need to engage each other in service. We need to engage each other in encouragement. We need to engage each other in love. We need to engage each other with assurance. This is the life of a minister, Paul says. This is your life. This is my life. This is what God is doing in us. And it's a worthwhile endeavor. So let's, let's give our lives to this. We know there's going to be ups and downs. We're not going to do this perfectly. But with each other, with the Scripture as our God, the Spirit guiding us and doing this in community, we have a hope. We have an assurance that we'll see the Lord. And when He sees us, He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this clear teaching of Your Word. What it looks like to be a, a minister of the Gospel. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that sees themselves outside of a ministry, hasn't bent or bowed their knees to Christ, that isn't in Christ, that they would see their need for you, uh, they would repent of their sin, they see that their sin has separated them, and, and that your life, your death, your resurrection was, was for them. How, how we gain entrance into Christ in this kingdom is through repentance and faith by Christ and what he has done for us. And for those of us that have done that, Lord, again, the, the, the goal is not to grow old in the faith, it's to grow up in the faith. We all are on this journey together, and we're all in different places, and we all need each other to build and to strengthen and to love and to encourage each other to that maturity. So may you do that, not in our strength, but in your strength. Not in our wisdom, but in your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.